morning. Um, do you want to turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 6, if you have one? Mark chapter 6. If you were with us yesterday, you'll know that we were looking at Jesus as King of the Wind and talking about the fear of God by looking at Jesus as King of the Wind. And I, I have to apologize to any... I, can you give me a little ripple of applause, clapometer, if your tent or your marquee was uprooted by the wind yesterday afternoon? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I had a lot of people, I had people online messaging me on Twitter, had people standing up and pointing at me and saying, you preached on Jesus as King of the Wind and now we don't have a marquee. And I said, it's all right, because this afternoon, tomorrow, I'm going to preach on King of the Sea, and that means we're all going to get flooded. So if it turns out the ocean just washes across East Anglia and takes us out, that'll be down to me. And you'll know you need to fear me as well as fearing the Lord. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at Jesus as King of the Sea. Can I hear you say King of the Sea? Thank you. So we're going to be in Mark 6, and um, the, the, what I'm trying to do in these mornings, if you weren't here yesterday is I'm trying to help us understand what it means to fear God and why that's a good thing. And for many of us, it can be very hard to understand. And what we did yesterday was to see the contrast between the way you are scared of something that's trying to get you, like the waves or the wind, and the, and the contrast between that sort of fear and the fear you have of Jesus when he silences the thing that's trying to get you. That you fear Jesus as one who is for you. And that's a very different type of emotion and response than fearing something that's trying to get you. And so today, having looked at Jesus as king of the wind, we're going to look at Jesus as king of the sea from Mark chapter 6. Even if you don't know your Bible well at all, you've probably heard this story in some way. Jesus walking on the water. And if you were here last night, you'll have heard TJ talk about it as well in a way that we're going to make different points, but it's, a sim- it's the same story. Mark chapter 6 and beginning at verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded because they didn't understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. This is the word of God. If you're a Jewish person in the first century, the sea for you was a source of confusion and chaos and fear in a way that it probably isn't for most of you because of the kind of ships we have today. But Israel was not known for her naval power, and they were frightened largely of the sea. The sea was a dark, confusing place. Invasions came from the sea. Monsters lived in the sea. If you read your Old Testament, there's various monsters that seem to be out there in the sea. The sea is dark and wild and scary, and it surges with a fierce and unpredictable power. Check this out.
Now that produces fear in me. I don't know if it does you. Some of you are going, what a cool surfer. And I'm just going, look at the size of that thing. The sea is threatening. It's surging. It's uncontrollable. In that sense, it's scary in the same way the wind is scary. But there's something very primal and aggressive about waves of that kind of size. And obviously, often... People's encounters with the sea do not end up with them surfing off and winning a record and being posted online. Often, people's encounters with the sea lead to them simply disappearing. Did you know 50 years ago, Australia lost a prime minister who just went, they literally, he just, he went for a swim on a beach in Australia and disappeared without trace and was never seen again. His name was Harold Holt. You can look it up. There's some really interesting conspiracy theories about it that some people think it was submarines on behalf of the Russians and some people think it was aliens. Um, But actually, most likely, um, not to, you know, anyway, um, most likely he just went for a swim and the sea is just too powerful and surging for any one person to fight. And he just vanished without trace and was never seen again. And the Jews tend to regard it, tended to regard the sea in that way. They would regard the sea as a sort of surging, dangerous beast. And Jews who went out to sea in the Old Testament often got lost or shipwrecked or conquered or, of course, in one famous case, swallowed by a great fish for three days. So a lot of Jewish people, the sea was this sort of dark, surging, aggressive force that you couldn't really control. And that's often how they see, saw it. And so interestingly, if you're, you're seeing in the story we just read, right, this is description of Jesus walking on the sea. Now, the funny thing is you and I, if we were there, probably wouldn't call it a sea. Luke, who was a Gentile man, when he writes his gospel, calls it a lake. It's about 15 miles across and it's fresh water, right? We call it the Sea of Galilee because that's what the Bible, that's what Matthew and Mark call it because they're Jews. But you and I would probably look at it and think, that's just a lake. But for them, it was a sea, it was a, a surging, dark morass, a power that no one could tame. And of course, Israel regarded it with fear, partly because in their story as a nation, the sea had often been a sign or a symbol of either the judgment of God or the power of enemy nations. So the flood was God judging the world with the sea. They were killed many of them by being thrown into the Nile by the Egyptians in the period of the Exodus. You may know that story. You may know the story of the parting of the Red Sea or the parting of the Jordan, where again the sea becomes this sort of raging force that has to be piled up so that Israel can walk through and then it floods and destroys their enemies. It's the place where God demonstrated his judgment on enemy nations or even on the whole world. And so for Israel to... The sea was a kind of not just a scary place because it was big waves and dark and frightening and full of monsters and enemies, but also because it, they knew that regularly it was a way that God had judged the world. And they were frightened of the sea. And the only person who could tell the sea what to do was the living God. Right? There was, this is not something that a human miracle worker could do. It was only the living God who could bring silence to the sea, who could calm it, as we saw yesterday. God is the only one who can separate the waters. He's the person who says the flood can come and then the one who says it should stop. He's the one who says to the waters, this far and no further. So every time I stand on the beach 200 meters from my house and the water comes up and laps to my feet, it cannot move an inch further than God has decreed because it's under the sovereignty of God. And that's why Job says, thus far, no further. It is absolutely under the feet of the living God. 
and the power to control the sea belongs to God and God alone. And that, so far, all Israelites would have agreed, right? So when Jesus suddenly arrives walking on the water, and you've got to remember, at this point, they aren't yet aware Jesus is Israel's God in human form. They don't know that. They think Jesus is impressive. They think he's Israel's king. But they don't know that this is the living God come in flesh. That's something that comes later in their understanding. And so when they see Jesus walking towards them on the sea, it is a dramatic moment of revelation for them that Jesus is, not because he is the king of the sea, he is the God of the universe as well. Which is all very well for us to say about Jesus because we've just been singing to him as God. But these guys are saying, hang on a second, we... We know your mom, we know your brothers, we've walked around with you, we've hung out with you, we've eaten meals with you. I'm not so sure that Israel's God is the way we tend to think of you. And then suddenly he's walking on the sea towards them as one of their friends and leader. And at this point, the disciples have this moment of extraordinary shock as they begin, they're terrified as they see the king of the sea walking towards them. So there are some miracles that Jesus does that we're supposed to do as well. Lots of them actually. We're going to See some of that, I think it's tomorrow night, with the healing meeting. We'll have stories of it. And those are miracles. Jesus, healing the sick is something that Jesus did and then sent us out to do as well. Casting out demons. Right? There's things you and I are supposed to do. And by the grace of God, I've seen those things happen many times in my life and in the lives of others. And you probably have too. But there are some miracles Jesus does that are for him and him alone. You and I, I don't think, are intended to stand on the beach and try walking out into the water and saying, I, in the name of Jesus, I will walk on the water. This is not something that is intended for ordinary Christians to do to demonstrate that they are king of the sea as well. This is something that is unique to Jesus because it doesn't just say the kingdom is here. It says the king is here. It says behold your God, not just behold this miracle or this sign. And as Jesus arrives walking on the sea, it communicates that God is there with them as the king of the sea in the boat. And I say that for three reasons, and I want you to track with me if you can and just follow why I'm saying this, why I believe that the, the gospel is telling us that in walking on the water, Jesus is God in human form. This is not something I'm reading into it, this is something that's there. Like the first reason I'm saying it is because Jesus is the one who walks on the sea, and the only one who can walk on the sea is the living God. So we saw it in verse 48. He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, for us, that's a stunt in our world. It just seems unnecessary. Why couldn't Jesus have just swum, or maybe rowed, or maybe teleported, since he can? Why does he need to walk on the water? What's the deal with, what's the reason for this miracle? It seems a little pointless. But in the world of the Old Testament, the Old Testament describes God as the one who can walk on the water. So Psalm 77 verse 19 says, your way, speaking to God in prayer, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. So because that's in the Old Testament, somebody then walks on the water in the New Testament and everyone goes, this is him. This is, this is the king of the sea. This is Israel's God here to save us, right? Isaiah 43, 16. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. This is the kind of language the Old Testament uses. 
that God is the one who can walk on the water. So when Jesus walks on the water, we're supposed to make the connection. This is him. This is God. This is the king of the sea. From the perspective of the Bible, if you, if you can walk on the water and leave no path behind you, you are Israel's God. There's no other word for it. So this is not something, as you sometimes hear, that the church much later said, oh, well, I think Jesus is God. Let's take up a vote. Who thinks he's God? Who thinks he's not? Oh, yeah, okay, we'll call him a God. That's not what's going on at all. Right from the beginning, when Christians were telling the Jesus story, they were describing a person who did the things you could only ever say of the God who created the world. So when we affirm that Jesus is God, we're right. That's what the gospel writers want us to do. He is God come in person. That's the first reason he walks on the water. The second reason why I see that Jesus is God in this story is that the king of the sea is that this weird phrase that you might have noticed as we read it, it says Jesus is the one who passes by them. Did you see this? There's a strange phrase, isn't it? In verse 48, he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they all cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. What a weird phrase that is. He meant to pass by them, right? The boat's here. The disciples are all yelling and screaming as we saw yesterday. And Jesus is walking on the water towards them. And it makes it sound like they're there and he doesn't know where they are. He meant to pass by. He's like, I think it's this way. So let's head over there. And then, sorry, I'm sorry. Can I hear some screaming? Oh, oh, there you are. Oh, sorry, I better get in. It makes it sound like that. And you think that surely can't be what the writer's intending to say. What do you mean he meant to pass by them? But again, when you pick up on the Old Testament reference to that phrase, it's very powerful. Right? Jesus passes by his disciples in his glory, just as God had passed by Moses in his glory. Right? Exodus 33, God says to Moses, There's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Passing by is something that God does. Passing by in glory, expressing your sovereignty over the waters is something that only God can do. And of course, if you read the Old Testament in Greek, which I know you all do, then you would find another reference and you'd be going, there's an even better one than that, Andrew. I found it. It's in Job chapter 9, and verses 8 to 11. Check this out as a description of what Jesus is doing. This is Job describing God, and then we read this in light of what Jesus has done. He alone stretched out the heavens and walks upon the sea as on dry ground. He made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south. Those are the stars, the constellations. Who, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He passes me by, but I don't perceive him. Can you think of a better description of what this story is saying than that? This is the one whose footprints are on the waters and he passes by me and I can't even see what he's like. So when Jesus passes by, this is a second way of saying, this is God. Look, this isn't just the, the kingdom coming, this is the king coming. The king of the sea is here and he's about to get into your boat. Jesus, like the God of Israel, is beyond understanding. You do not understand what you're dealing with when you talk about Jesus. When you look at him across the ocean, you don't know who he is. He's too great for you, and you have to wait for him to pause and come down and sit in your boat to have any access to him at all. Mark is using the language of passing by, not to say Jesus got lost or confused. He's saying Jesus is the God of Job, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who you're dealing with here. This man who's 5'6", 
and has a few broken teeth and brown hair and brown eyes. And he's sitting there and he, you know, eating with you and having a meal and smells just like you do and gets up and does what everybody else does in the day. You are dealing with the God of Job, the God himself who has had to hide you from his glory in order to be able to allow you to see him is now going to step into your boat and minister to you. So that's the second reason why I think we're talking about Jesus as king of the sea being Israel's God. And then the third one is this amazing phrase with which Jesus reassures them. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Look at verse 50, if you would. Jesus says, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. Take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, that phrase, it is I, we don't tend to talk like that, I don't think. Um, you're walking along and somebody walks past the other, the other way and says, oh, I didn't recognize you. You say, oh, yeah, it is I. And you normally would say, it's me, right? Or, oh, yeah, it's just me, only me, or something like that. In many ways, this is just the way that in, your, in their language they would say, it's me, it is I, right? That's partly what's going on here. But the, lang- the words that Jesus uses, actually, in the original, when he says, take heart, he then says, I am. Take heart, I am don't be afraid. And in in Greek today, that's still how you would say it. Take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. Now, again, if you know your Old Testament, you will know that the I am is the name of God. And we sing to him as that, that we probably already have this week. He is the great unchangeable I am, or you are the I am. It's a way of saying, you are God, Jesus. You are the everlasting one, the eternal one who has never ceased to be. You're the one who was there before there was a world. You're the one who will be there until long after the world as it currently is has gone and been remade. You are forever. You are the I am. And so when Jesus steps into the boat and says, take heart, I am, he's not just saying, hey guys, it's just me. He's saying, guys, I am the I am. And I'm with you and I don't want you to be afraid. And because he says that, there is a, very explicit statement in the story that we are dealing here with God in human form. That the God, of the, the God of the world, the God of the stars, the God who is creator, the eternal one, has stepped into flesh, has walked across the sea, has meant to pass them by like only God does, and then has got into the boat and said, don't worry, I am. You mustn't be afraid. And God still says those words to us. He says those words to you. Because the disciples are in a storm in a very literal sense. You and I probably, that's unlikely to be our experience, that we are, you might be as I was yesterday, you might find yourself caught at sea in a storm, but mostly the sorts of storms that you and I experience are not at sea in the same way. Because our technology is good and we can avoid those problems mostly. But you and I live in storms all the time. Many of you even yesterday when I was finishing speaking Something like this question was going through your mind, saying, well, it's all very well for Jesus to come and calm the wind and the waves, but why hasn't he done that in my life yet? Why am I still in a storm then? If he loves me, if I don't need to be afraid, why why hasn't he done this? Why is that storm all around me still raging? Now, you might not be in a storm at all. Great, I'm so pleased. I've lived through a few. When I was, I don't I probably didn't encounter storms very much when I was young. Claude He has just shared a whole bunch of storms that he has faced in his life and talked about how ultimately Jesus has delivered him and the I am has been with him in the boat. 
My storms were not the same as Claude's. My background was different, and I've, but I've experienced very different kinds of storms. I don't know if you ever, have you ever been in the middle of a social media shaming storm? Have you ever had that where, it, where people are coming? I've, I've had this, where people come out of the woodwork all over the world. You have got, your feed is just blowing up with dozens and dozens of people who think you are the epitome of evil who are doing everything they can to trash you and your reputation. They're including your wife in it. They are piling into you with all kinds of abuse for something that you said that you still just believe is true, but they hate, and, they ju- and you just become a, 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 a sort of ob- object of ridicule. And the whole internet world, also it seems to you, just piling on you, screaming and foaming at the mouth and attacking you for what you've done. Have you ever had something a bit like that? Now, to me, that was a storm. I was talking to a friend just yesterday about, he's just had one too, and we were just comparing notes on social media shaming storms and how at times like that, there is no substitute for hearing the voice of Jesus come to you and say, don't be afraid, I am. Take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. It may not make that storm go away instantly. In my case, it didn't. But there's a voice from Jesus that steps in and says, I am. Don't be afraid. I'm here with you. I had a storm with my children where our, both of our children got disabilities and particularly my daughter's very disabled. And we had a, it was a horrible, horrible time when that we found out and she was losing all of her skills and going backwards in development. And it was, it was awful. It was, pain. it was like lying on the floor sobbing kind of time for us as parents. It was just really painful. She's still very disabled to, to this day, and it's a real challenge for her doing life, and it's a challenge for us doing life in many ways and helping her. And in the middle of that storm, which probably that storm has not been yours, but you may well have had that with brothers, sisters, it may be your storm right now. At that point, again, any, there's all sorts of things the world can say and try and encourage you and say, it'll get better. You think, well, it might not. Or people will come and say, don't worry, I'll fix it. And you say, no, but you don't have the power to fix this. Or is there anything I can do to help? And you think, well, that's lovely, but do you know, I'm, sometimes I'm not even sure there is. The only words that bring comfort in the storm like that are when somebody steps in, not, one, not somebody, when he steps in and says, take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. That's the only thing that gets me through. And that's the only thing that gets clawed through. That's the only thing that gets you through is when, some, when the living God steps in and says, I am, don't be afraid. Now, there are a lot of people who try and reassure you by telling you not to be afraid, and you only listen to them if they have the power to actually do something about it. Have you found that? Sometimes someone telling you not to be scared doesn't necessarily help if that person can't do anything about the problem. I, I laugh about this, but because my, because my daughter's got a lot of challenges, we sometimes have people stay overnight in our house to, so that we can sleep, so they can look after the children when they're up in the night and things. And one of the guys we asked to do this um, is a young guy called Joel, who's a good friend of our family. Uh, he's kind of tall, got a very deep voice, six foot two, and he hears that my daughter's woken up in the night, and so he goes up just to give her a bit of medicine because that's what she needs. And while he's going in to help my daughter out, my wife wakes up, because she can also hear my daughter, but doesn't realize that Joel has got up. And it's pitch black, and so Rachel is half asleep, walking down the hallway, not knowing that Joel is in Anna's room at this moment giving medicine, and that she's about to encounter a tall, dark, shadowy, deep-voiced man in her house in the dark, and she's half asleep and doesn't know what's going on. But she doesn't know that. So she's blundering towards him, and at this point, Joel, who is awake, realizes that Rachel is coming. And thinks, well, I'm kind of trapped, so my daughter's 
room is like in a little corridor of its own and there's nowhere to hide. So once you round that corner, you are going to have a confrontation in the middle of the night. But have you ever tried reassuring someone that there's nothing to be scared of when they don't know you're there? It's actually really hard because no matter what you say, they will jump out of their skin. Now, Joel, in my judgment, made what I think was actually a bad call in hindsight that he decided to sort of try and shrink into the wall and then say, as Rachel rounded the corner half asleep with a man in her house in the dark, decided to say, don't be afraid, Rachel, which is the very worst thing you can do. So if you ever have this experience, I just say anything else, like sing a song, anything, drop something, sneeze, but don't say, don't be afraid, Rachel. It's incredibly threatening. And so there are times, aren't there, where you might, and you might have done it, where you try and reassure somebody, either in a silly situation or a very serious one, but you try and reassure them, tell them not to be afraid, and it doesn't necessarily work because you don't have the power to stop them being scared. Now, sometimes you get someone who can do a bit better than that. Sometimes you get situations where a person can reassure you, and it temporarily works, but it doesn't last. So I've had that as well. I remember being stuck at sea, actually, I was sailing, and I got completely stuck in a tidal harbor and was being sucked out of the harbor and didn't know how to control the boat. And some random guy sees we're in trouble, jumps into the boat, helps us, and basically says, don't be afraid, I am. And we think, oh, great, that's great. And he then sails us back and rescues us because he's a better sailor than me. And that's, the, but, the, but te that's a temporary fix, and it's great, but of course, the next time you hit a problem, it doesn't necessarily help you. But there are also times when someone coming up to you and saying, don't be afraid, I'm here, makes all the difference in the world because you know how much they love you. And I had this with the closest I've ever got to death, since I'm sharing all my near-death stories. So I'm 11 years old, and I cycle into the middle of a main road at high speed and get hit by a VW Beetle and smashed against the side of it, flipped up over onto the bonnet, and the windscreen wiper of the VW Beetle goes four inches into right here. I won't show it, but it looks like a shark bite, basically. I've still got it now, and it's just it's a pretty savage. It's effectively been stabbed four inches deep in your side. And it went right in between my liver and my spleen, if you know what those things are. And if you're grossed out mildly by that, don't worry, so was the doctor. And I sort of f fell off the other side of the bonnet, landed on my head, and lie there in a pool of blood very nearly dead. And of course, my dad quickly hears this has happened. And my dad arrives at the side of the road, and I'm just lying there in a pool of my own blood, and he doesn't know whether I'm going to survive or not which is pretty frightening if you have an 11-year-old boy. And he just is sitting there. I don't even remember his exact words, but he's sitting there on the side of the road saying, take heart, I'm here, don't be afraid. And in a situation like that, those words make all the difference in the world because you know how much they love you. You know that they are with you. And you know that even though it hasn't stopped the bad thing from happening to you, their presence with you brings a reassurance and a love and an affection that means that other fears dissipate or disintegrate. You might still be scared of what might happen. You are in the back of an ambulance, as I was, pelting across the road to a hospital, hoping that you pull through and not really understanding what's going on and having all kinds of people poking into your side and pulling glass out of your body. And you don't know what's going on quite, but you know that your father is there and you know that he's saying it's going to be okay even though the storm is still very much going on around you. And if you're in a storm today, the voice of Jesus as he comes to you is say, listen, the disciples were afraid of the sea, but when they saw Jesus, it says they were utterly astounded by him. Did you notice that? 
It's exactly what we saw yesterday. They were afraid of the winds, and they were filled with a great fear at the king of the wind. They, in this story, they were afraid of the sea, but they were utterly astounded in the presence of the king of the sea. And when Jesus gets into the boat and calms the sea, it is a game changer. You are so utterly astounded at him that you don't notice the sea anymore. You don't notice the blood coming out of your side anymore. You don't notice even sometimes the storm itself. You are just aware that the I am is with you. And by the way, that doesn't necessarily tell you why the storm was allowed to happen. I don't know why God had allowed me to go through the storms I've gone through. And I don't know why he's allowed you to go through the storms you're in right now. I'm not sure I'm ever going to get an answer to some of those questions. And sometimes I'm okay with that because I know that God knows some things I don't. And I'm going to have to let him be God and me be me. But what I must have and what I cannot live without is the words that come from God in the boat with me. Take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. When the king of the sea gets into the boat with you, it makes all the difference in the world. And that awe and wonder and that astoundedness at him quickly translates into a sense of worship that lifts your gaze and says, you know, God, I do not understand why this has happened. And I'm pleading with you to fix it. But even while it's still going on, I am okay if you are here with me. And if the wind and waves obey you, so will I. And if the ocean bows in reverence, so will I. And if creation still obeys you, and if the wind goes where you send it, so will I. I need the king of the sea to step into my world and tell me, take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. Friends, the the sea is not so frightening when the king of the sea is with you. Let's pray. Let's stand, shall we? And again, if we stand quietly without any noise, And I'll pray, Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, God in person, to demonstrate to us that he was in charge of the most frightening things this world has to throw at us, able to walk on the water, able to pass by in his glory, and able to speak those words of courage and faith. Take heart, I am, don't be afraid. Lord, make us fearless people because we fear Jesus. We need fear nothing and no one else, and we pray you would help us stand in faith. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.